everybody. I'm joined today for my next episode of the 1570 Project, which is my spinoff to the Tom Shattuck's Burn Barrel podcast. I'm joined today by uh, two experts in uh, campaign finance because this is an issue that I care a lot about. It's something that when I try and talk to Tom about it, his eyes kind of glaze over and he thinks it's the most boring thing in the world. But I kind of tend to think that it's really um, where the most interesting part of elections happen. And, you know, I've heard so much rhetoric this past year about, you know, the election being stolen and it being a setup and people stealing votes from voting machines and foreign interference. And I think sometimes there are um, kind of more mundane ways that elections are influenced that people don't even really talk about because they are kind of boring and in the weeds. And uh, so here to kind of talk to me about some of these issues and why they're important are uh, my friend Paul Craney, a spokesperson of the Mass Fiscal Alliance, a nonpartisan group here in Massachusetts that does a lot of work in elections and around um, finance and transparency in government. Uh, so I've worked with Paul Craney in the past, uh, in particular on legislation around, uh, in Massachusetts, we have this loophole where unions are allowed to spend huge amounts of money in elections, but corporations aren't. We're one of the only states in the country that has that. So we've done some work on that together. And uh, also today we have Lee Goodman, who's an attorney in private practice and formerly was the chairman of the Federal Election Commission. So both bring a lot of expertise. And I'm really excited to to kind of talk to them about this. Um, so Lee, I want to kind of start by asking you um, what's going on in election law right now and in campaign finance, because a lot of attention has sort of been paid with H.R. 1 and these election laws recently to the restrictions on voting itself. But there are things about these laws that also impact campaign finance. So what do you see as being the big defining issues of these pieces of legislation that we're seeing both on a state and lo- and uh, federal level? Well, uh, looking back, you know, about 50 mm-hmm. years ago with the enactment of the Federal Election Campaign Act uh, and the major amendments in 1974, right. uh, Congress tried to put limits on how much people could spend of their own money to fund political speech, particularly electoral speech. Right. And the Supreme Court, uh, in a seminal decision in 1976, decided that um, limitations on your money to fund speech directly limits your ability to speak. Right. And and that often is caricatured as money is speech. Uh, but honestly, if you told the New York Times, you have all the free press rights that you want, but you could only spend $10,000 to exercise them. Well, look at their printing presses, look at the reporters that they pay, mm-hmm. look at their distribution system to the front porches and on the Internet and all of that expenditure required mm-hmm. to disseminate information. Well, the same is true of political of citizens and political organizations that want to speak. So um, what the Supreme Court upheld were limits in t- of contributions to candidates Mm-hmm. But ever since the 1970s, we've seen expanding freedom to spend your own money to speak. The next great seminal decision you'll recall was the Citizens United decision, right. which ruled that um, even if, you, uh, if your association of people is incorporated, you don't lose your First Amendment right to spend your resources as you see fit 
to talk to the American citizens about any subject that you want uh, and to do so um, often disclosed if you are uh, advocating the election or defeat of candidates. Mm-hmm. Well, that frustrated those who believe in greater spending and speech restrictions. So where are we left? Where has the dust settled in the in the overarching debate? Mm-hmm. And and uh, that is on the issue of public disclosure, also known as compulsory exposure of those citizens who choose to speak. Um, and and what we're the 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 default line or the debate line today mm-hmm. is over reformers' effort to expand public doxing and ex- compulsory exposure of right. those people who choose to speak. And where the growth area is now is those who want greater regulation of speech want greater exposure of those who merely want to discuss public policy not candidates in the electoral system. Mm -hmm. So do you think, I know this has been a big issue, especially, um, you know, back in the Obama years, we had the Obama administration going after all these sort of Tea Party groups. So when you say like the doxing of people who want to do political speech and not even necessarily particular candidates or something, but people who want to talk about issues in a political way, um, you know, are allowed to run groups that spend part of their money on on what's political speech, but not, you know, advocating for a particular electoral result. And and the Obama administration went after these people that had these groups and essentially doxed them to the IRS were examining their finances and and you know, other parts of the administration, other agencies were going after them and targeting them for years. And uh, and that was something I think that that worried a lot of people. I mean, I think if Trump had did something like that to left wing groups, all these kind of grifter groups that showed up during the resistance, all these blue wave groups and the Lincoln Project, like if the Trump administration had gone after the finances of the Lincoln Project, we would have never heard the end of it. But now I feel like this is like slipped away into the past. But this is also the kind of speech that um, that I think people are trying to regulate now with talking about what people can talk about and and, you know, what kinds of groups can spend money and what kinds of groups can say things, you know. So is that something that we're seeing like a push for legislation or for legal action to go after groups that that say political things that the government doesn't like? Sure. The um, the emphasis of the reform movement today, mm-hmm. and it is in H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which some of us call the For the Politicians Act, right. because what it does is it protects politicians against criticism mm-hmm. by by the citizenry. Um, and, and I know Paul can talk about uh, the Massachusetts legislature and what right. they've done in order to out and expose those people who merely want to talk about policy, sometimes mentioning the policy positions of incumbent office holders. Right. And there are two ways now that particularly the left. Now, I, I want to be clear, historically, Compulsory exposure and doxing and stigmatization and trying to chase people out of the public square mm-hmm. has been an ecumenical exercise. The right historically used it against the left, but today it is largely a left on right attack to push conservative voices out of the public square by compelling mm-hmm. public 
and or governmental exposure of those people who are funding issue speech. And they face, in the public sphere, they face uh, cancel campaigns and strategies mm -hmm. against them, right? Major right. corporations and even individuals have their homes boycotted mm -hmm. uh, and, and marches in front of their homes, sometimes paint thrown on their front porches. And that's, that's a heavy burden for an individual to carry. Corporations, of course, are worried about their image and their share value, mm -hmm. but also even compulsory exposure to government offices like the IRS or to state attorney general's offices mm -hmm. carries quite a chill, a burden on the freedom of association and speech because government officials have tremendous power over you and right. can abuse. And there is a long track record like the one you mentioned at mm -hmm. the IRS of abusing governmental power to punish speech and speakers and groups with whom you disagree. Right, right. So that's so interesting. So Paul, on your end, I know that this is something that Mass Fiscal has run into too, as being a group that is nonpartisan, it's not a Republican or a Democrat group. But and so obviously, you do a lot of advocating in on political issues, in particular transparency on fiscal responsibility, hence the name, um, those kinds of I would think, like moderate nonpartisan issues. Um, so and it, Massachusetts, though, is a very activist state, and a very entrenched Democrat state. So I mean, do you see barriers from those forces here in Massachusetts impacting like what you can do and trying to chill your donors and things like that? Um, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we started in 2012 and it took about two years before the legislature proposed laws and actually passed laws to try to silence mm -hmm. our group's speech and association. So, yeah, I mean, we came on the scene for the first time in generations. We started to make um, easily available lawmakers uh, positions on how they vote on taxes, spending the budget and transparency. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started to put that out there for the public to see. And they passed not one, but two laws to try to stop us. The first law didn't go far enough because we found other ways to communicate with the public. So they passed a second law and mm -hmm. they use the same talking points that they're using with HR1, which is um, they wanted to identify uh, members identity of organizations that speak up when there's a proximity to an election day. Right. And uh, that's just a way of intimidation. That's all it is, like Lee pointed out. Mm -hmm. It's not there to protect the people. It's there to protect the politicians. But the good news is that we, um, as an organization, are able to overcome that. Uh, I think the public has also kind of gotten smart to this. Um, the politicians will always use campaign finance law as a weapon to, silent, to try to silence speech. Um, it's mm -hmm. pretty routine. Um, right. So, yeah, of course, in Massachusetts, I mean, we were not immune to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've tried to sue the state on it. Um, everything we do as an organization is subject to state campaign finance law and federal regulations. And it's funny, this topic, there's so many self-proclaimed experts on it. Yeah. But almost none of them have ever actually lived a day in a life of being regulated. Right. With the repercussions of civil and criminal penalties. Mm -hmm. So it's not an easy uh, tightrope to walk because for the most part, the laws are pretty clear, but sometimes there's laws that are a little gray. And then right. you add the politics and you could be legally clear, 
but politically um, you could become a punching bag and you got to endure that and be aware of all these risks and calculations just for exercising your first amendment, right? Freedom of speech association. That's it. Right. Right. And sometimes that when rules are gray, the state chooses who to enforce them on and who not to. And sometimes those decisions are a little bit murky. How those decisions are made is what I've seen, too, as you know, oh, absolutely. I was yeah. involved in local politics and we saw the same thing. It just, you know, how they're deciding who to find and who to let off with a warning letter or who to take to the courts is it's a they're very political decisions. Um, so it it does get frustrating in Massachusetts in particular. Um, but in a more general sense, like, how do you answer people when people say, well, they just want transparency, they just want to know where the money comes from, like, people who advocate radical transparency, like, say whatever you want, but we have the right to know who you are and who's funding you and what they believe. So we can choose, you know, where to spend our money or, um, you know, whether or not we want to support you. That's so, I mean, how yeah, do you I answer love, those types of criticism? that argument. Yeah, Alice, I love hearing that argument because actually they don't have that right. You know, I can't go to a private business and say, I want to see your customer list. I can't go to the Boston Globe and say, I want to see your subscriber list. I can't go to a church down the road and say, I want to see your membership list. Mm -hmm. You know, that's ridiculous. Every business and corporation um, has some constitutional rights, and that includes privacy and the ability to have some speech. So when people say stuff like that, I often just go back and say, the only person that has a right to become identified is the donor who gives that that support to the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right, wanting to know who these donors are, these members are, doesn't uh, exceed the individual person's right of their decisions and how they participate with these different groups. Mm-hmm. So that's actually, that's kind of like a left-wing talking point that right. is very kind of like fascist if you think about it. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the stuff that comes from third world countries that now they're using and they're thinking and they're hoping that it sticks but when you talk to folks, even open-minded left-wing people, they start realizing, oh, yeah, this kind of sounds really bad that I'm just going around to organizations and saying I want all these things, especially when you apply it to other entities like churches, businesses, Boston Globe newspapers. Like, it just sounds crazy when you compare it, but that's actually what they're saying, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, if you have a right to my members, then, you know, what else do you want? Do you want my payroll records? Do you want my vendor records? Do right. you want the code to my security? Can I give my debit card information? It's just so nuts when you think about it. But yeah, and candidates already that. have. I mean, obviously, Mass Fiscal isn't a candidate, but political candidates already have so much of that pressure on them. Um, you know, to have every receipt, every you know, check image, everything to to hold up as proof of what they spent money on and what they did. And uh, I mean, I think it's already pretty onerous because, like you say, mm-hmm. it's these regulations are so complex that it does intimidate people out. Even like if you're going to, you know, run for the board of health in your town and your friend spends money printing something like that's an in-kind donation, really, you know? So, um, and, and people don't think of those things. I'm sure tons of it doesn't get reported at a small local level, but it's, it's when it happens at a big level that people start to get worked up and start to get upset. But I was really interested in something you said too, Lee, where you were saying that, you know, people say like money isn't speech, but anyone who's worked on like a tiny local campaign knows that money is a huge limiting factor on your speech. You know, that, that when you are trying to make, 
yard signs and make brochures to hand out and all these other things. It all costs money. I mean, forget even like paying volunteers or people's salaries on your campaign. Um, You know, at the level where I've done most of my activism, and I'm sure where Paul does a lot of his, you know, nobody's really making money. There's no like big salaries and overhead. So many people are volunteering. We're not talking about that. We're talking about like, you know, just the money to print up the pieces of paper that has to come out of the pocket of the candidate if nobody else. So, um, you know, I've I've been thinking about that a lot over the last couple of years, and especially with Bloomberg's campaign, like how he spent all the money in the world and could hire everybody and pay them huge salaries and all these things, but it didn't, there was definitely a ceiling on how much his money could buy him. I mean, do you think that was like a test case for how big a deal money really is in politics? Like, that it helps it helps you to an extent not having money can stop you but having tons of money doesn't necessarily put you over the top no i i agree and uh we have many examples of entrenched incumbents uh, hillary clinton spent far more probably is uh probably two to three hundred million dollars more mm-hmm. than donald trump did in 2016 The person who spends the most does not necessarily resonate the most uh, with uh, with voters. Um, Now, as you say, money is an important element of running a campaign for office. Mm -hmm. Money does fund speech and organization uh, and door knockers and everything else that you need. But it doesn't guarantee victory. I could spend I could spend millions of dollars trying to convince people of something that is just beyond the pale. And the fact that I spend a bunch of money doesn't mean that the people are ultimately persuaded because at the end of the day, it's about persuasion and people still vote. Um, The money doesn't vote, right? The Mm -hmm. money merely tries to convince people of a position or a candidacy. We've also seen lots of levelers Mm -hmm. uh, due to technology. Today, small candidates can compete financially because the internet has supercharged small dollar fundraising. Right. And, and you saw this in South Carolina in the last Senate race hmm. with a, a, a good sort of a internet platform called ActBlue right. raising millions and millions of dollars for a Democratic candidate in small dollar chunks. The other thing the internet does is it levels the playing field for speech itself so that if if you want to have your own podcast now and have a voice, mm-hmm. you can compete with the Boston Globe now. Right. Um, if you want to start a blog or you want to disseminate your speech on a, um, on a Twitter account, okay, mm-hmm. you can do that now and populist voices can now have a platform to influence. So there have been these great levelers and money doesn't control the outcome of elections. Uh, the way maybe it it once did. Right. Now, with those advances, do you think it's more important that we look at regulating some of those other um, routes that candidates use to get heard? I know this has become sort of a big issue in particular on the right. Um, But, you know, saying that if Twitter is going to kick off one candidate in a race and not the other, is that some kind of donation? Should that be regulated, you know, in the way that campaign finance is? You know, is it fair that with how important places like Twitter have become for candidates, is it right? Can we have a fair election if one candidate's not allowed to use social media? Paul, do you want to take that? 
Um, you know, it's going back to using campaign finance law as a weapon to sound speech. Mm-hmm. I think some of the left have now been able to manipulate social media platforms to silence opposition speech, especially right at a critical time before mm-hmm. an election. We saw that at the New York Post breaking that story about Hunter Biden, and it was shut right. down for two weeks. So I think the regulation should go back on the vendors to treat everyone equally. I think with campaign finance law, you have to remember, when it's clear and fair, then it usually works pretty well. Fair so that both sides of either a political um, election or a policy mm-hmm. um, battle are treated the same and fair so that everyone knows you know, where the red line is in the sand that you can't right. cross. Those are kind of like two metrics I always look at. But back to your previous question that you asked with Lee with money, mm-hmm. I get asked that a lot too. And, um, you know, Lee raised the, the Hillary Cl- Clinton example. And I think also the Trump and Clinton primary are interesting to look at because mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders back in 2016 almost beat Hillary Clinton in the primary. And he had tons of small dollar donations and Clinton had tons of money. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, Jeb Bush came out real early and I think he had like a hundred million dollar super PAC. Wow. Um, and he had all the money in the world, basically. And he just completely fell flat. And a guy named Trump out of nowhere came on mm-hmm. strong. So it just shows you again, um, you know, candidates, I think the really smart candidates are now gravitating to having a lot of small dollar donations, not big, big mm-hmm. donations from a smaller amount of people. Right. And as, as Lee said, he's so right. I've been saying this for a long time that now there's a level, there's levelers, there's ways for people, average average people that don't need to spend money to mm-hmm. get their voice out there. And I always go back to social media back in the day. It was letter to, you know, letters to the editor and op-eds, which are still available and still have some influence, mm-hmm. but there's other ways to get your message out even without the need for money, but money definitely helps. Yeah. I mean, look at Andrew you. Yang. He just went on Rogan and now, and he had, you know, he certainly wasn't necessarily a contender for the democratic nomination per se, but it certainly launched him into the public eye in a way that he's now situated to, to really, you know, be a contender for mayor of New York, which is a pretty big job. And, and Alice Lee helped me with this last year. How could we not mention the rank choice ballot question of 2020? In Massachusetts, I mean, this is a group right. that for two and a half years had ten million dollars of money, mostly coming from out of state, from Texas and New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, just um, filling the airwaves in Massachusetts for this ballot question. Yeah. And Lee, you're you've had a lot of experience with ranked choice, so you're able to speak about it in a very articulate way. And I know you did some public forums, but you know, it's no secret that I helped try stopping ranked choice successfully. You know, the, the no side spent less than five grand. The yes side spent $10 million. And, uh, you know, we won 65, uh, was I think we got 65% of the vote. Yeah. So again, great example of even with all the money in the world, the Bloombergs, whatever it may be, the ranked choices out there, you know, that doesn't necessarily translate to a win. Yeah. And Alice, I'll add, right. when you look at all of the avenues of communication we have today, we're talking uh, newspapers in print, newspapers mm-hmm. online, radio, uh, TV. Uh, when you look at the real cacophony of information that people have access mm-hmm. to, um, you know, it does take money to have a voice in that cacophony, although you can have a voice at a cheaper price. Right. But you know, people like to pick on 
the money that goes to politicians or political parties to fund speech, well, we can't cede all of the public dialogue just to establishment, establishment media, for mm-hmm. example. You know, I mean, uh, groups like Paul's organization and campaigns and whether it's a policy debate that mass physical is involved in or whether it's a campaign, uh, those organizations deserve to raise money. It is a important form of association to pull your resources together around a common cause. And it is not all corrosive or corruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it's called civic engagement where I come right. from. And, uh, but, but, you know, people can get information from so many places now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the popular or pejorative narrative of, you know, money in politics. Well, the problem right. is you're always talking about somebody else's politics and somebody else's money. Your money is, your money is always virtuous, mm-hmm. but it, it is important. And uh, the law protects the ability to raise money and spend money in politics where the line is drawn today in policy and in constitutional law, Mm -hmm. because the First Amendment draws lines beyond which government cannot go to regulate, is you can limit contributions and require disclosure of spending where the money is directly tied to the election or defeat of a politician. But outside that line, when you are discussing public policy or when Mass Fiscal wants to tell people how a politician voted in office, that is issue speech. And we should not be requiring public disclosure or limits of that kind of funding uh, and that kind of speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that makes sense to me. And I I think that, you know, the line between does this help or hurt a candidate and is it issues speech can feel gray to some people too, or even just the line between does this help or hurt a candidate and is it entertainment? Because for example, part of the reason Trump was so successful in 2016 was because media programs kept inviting him on because he was great for ratings. He was entertaining. He was interesting. He drove outrage clicks and, um, And he got huge amounts. I mean, people have estimated the millions of dollars worth of exposure he just got in free earned media from from media companies that supposedly hate him. I mean, Morning Joe is a great example. They had him on tons of times in the lead up to the election. And is is that is that a campaign donation? Well, not really, but it's certainly um, it certainly counts for something because that would cost a lot of money if you had to pay for that kind of exposure, you know, so. I mean, I, I think it's a, a more difficult line in today's world. I even think about that Super Bowl right after Trump was elected and all the commercials were about, you know, not building walls and kind of veiled hints about how they felt about Trump and his election. And, you know, the, my friends on the left didn't seem to mind the political speech from corporations in that context. That was for sure. You know, nobody- yeah, Alice, yeah. you are hitting on a point that is so relevant to right now. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, Lee, you and I know for like, it was like 10 years from 2010 to 2020, it was corporations should never have the ability to have so much speech in, in public policy or elections. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, the backlash toward Trump. And now it's like, listen to all these corporations chime in on, on the political process and how wonderful it is. 
Right. It's like, whatever happened to silencing all these corporations? How dare they have as equal amount of speech as mm-hmm. individuals? It's just so funny how these issues boomerang 180 degrees right. if it's convenient for a certain political party or an ideology. Mm-hmm. If you agree with the speech, it's virtuous. If you don't, it's corrupt. Right. Yeah. Even with the Georgia voting law that we saw, yeah. um, the the um the corporations pulling out of Georgia businesses, the MLB All Star Game leaving, and and people not only cheered that on, but they were mad because Home Depot, which is based their corporate offices are in Atlanta, didn't want to weigh in. So they said, not only do you have do corporations have the right to speech, they have a responsibility to speak out on the issues that I care about. And if I don't, then they're evil. If they are just non political, then they're, they're a problem. So it it really is when you say it's a one eighty, it's a it's the exact opposite position that they held for all the years beforehand. Um, yeah, con- contradicting and embarrassment are never deterrents for mm-hmm. um, this kind of stuff in politics by the left. I mean, they just don't care. Right, right. I mean, and then you see these things too, like not just the corporate speech, but actual corporate money in politics. And this was something that I can't believe this wasn't reported on more. Like it was a little in the right wing, but. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife spent almost a half a billion dollars giving money to municipalities to help run elections and make voting easier for people. And they spent it almost entirely in heavily Democratic districts. Now, if you did anything through the government, if you distributed money to municipalities for voting infrastructure uh, and you gave it all to districts of one party or you gave it all to districts that were you know heavily white and not minority you would run afoul of actual laws i mean the government wouldn't be able to do that i mean maybe not the partisan thing in some cases i think some states may have laws against like partisan bias but but maybe not all but i know like the race like the voting rights act stuff you wouldn't be able to do something like that but you know facebook did this privately they just privately gave money to municipalities and counties to run elections and This has gotten so little attention. I mean, I think of that as election spending. I can't believe they did that and nobody cares. So one of the things some of these like Republican laws in the states have done is try and target that type of spending and not allow these, um, you know, government entities like towns and cities to take that money. But I mean, is that something that's going to become a bigger factor in the future? Like that people are just going to go around all these laws and find other ways to get money to where it matters to swing an election? I mean, Lee, is that something you're seeing as a focus of the, the laws right now? Well, it was a concern, obviously, uh, expressed by some. I'm not as concerned about it mm-hmm. um, because, remember, the money there doesn't go to the politicians. The money goes to uh, governmental entities, election right. administrative offices. OK, um, what I'm more concerned about, we all need to be concerned about, is what strings are attached to those grants and contributions that are made. Because mm-hmm. in some states, there was evidence through email traffic and uh, and other documentation that the private organizations that were making grants to improve election administration in those areas mm-hmm. were effectively operating the precincts, effectively wow. implementing the elections. And that has to remain a public function. I am less concerned that we provide adequate or additional funding to public offices to effectively run precincts 
than I am when the nonprofit organizations start substituting their own people, their own procedures Mm -hmm. for what should be a public function of running the election. Right. And do you think the inequitable distribution of the money where if private organizations are deciding which towns and which areas to give money to, do you think that's a concern too? That, I mean, I know from going to town meetings and following town finances that towns never have enough money to run their elections. So it's always a concern. And, you know, I'm not saying that I think it's bad that they have money to run the elections because I think they need it in a lot of cases. But but do you think that that it impacts the election if, you know, Republican areas have longer lines, for example, or, um, you know, fewer voting hours because, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg decided that that this Democrat area could have all this money to do it, too, as well as actually running it itself. Well, um, I've always been in favor of more funding for election infrastructure and election mm-hmm. administration. Right. You know, the, the right to vote is a hallowed right. And it is, as you say, Alice, underfunded systemically everywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Because it's typically something that uh, it, it jumps into um, being every two years, right? right? And then everyone forgets about it. And we have many elections that there, but by the grace of God, you know, we, we get mm-hmm. through without a Florida debacle. We remember the 2000 debacle. Oh, yes. So uh, one little stress test can, and COVID uh, was a stress test for our election systems. Um, as well. So I've always supported greater funding for election administration generally. Mm -hmm. Um, As long as jurisdictions have sufficient funding to get people to vote, um, if you have to wait 30 minutes or an hour, that's not ideal. It's usually just the peak hours of the day that people... So I'm not real concerned about disparate funding Mm-hmm. Uh, in more heavily democratic areas, so long as people in all areas can still vote. Um, mm-hmm. Again, my concern is when the uh, private funders start actually running the election right. for the public officials, give them the money and let them implement the election, uh, it would be my point. Yeah. And in the other areas, so long as people can vote, uh, I'm not too concerned that we that we give inner cities, for example, extra resources hmm. to, to to supplement um, their election administration infrastructure and operations. Right. Right. That makes sense. I mean, so one reason why that was like so fascinating to me is because I didn't think I mean, maybe it was just all the distraction of like the crack in lawsuits and the hacked voting machines and dominion and this and that and like and now what is it like bamboo fibers on ballots or something in arizona like i can't even keep track of it and it's all like so wild and i just go back to but what about the boring things what about you know who's running the election actually and like you say that's um in this case where where there was so much money involved here from private actors that that is a concern and I mean, it's even a concern, like, Paul, you know this, dealing with local elections, it's a concern sometimes in the local elections, because there's only so many people in some of these small towns, and that's who's running the elections, and they're friends with so-and-so, and, you know, there's always drama with these things, and that's why we have, like, local boards of electors, um, 
boards of elections that help run these things and deal with them. And you have to have a Republican representative and a Democrat representative and and try and work together because there's always drama about getting signatures thrown out and this and that, even at the sort of local level. Sometimes I think... Isn't there some saying about like when the stakes are smallest is when people have the biggest, the biggest, most dramatic fights about these things? I think, you know, one of our really dramatic fights here in Massachusetts was a few years ago over the state committee races, actually, also in 2016 when Trump was elected. And that's about, you know, who runs the local Republican Party. And that was some of the the bitterest electoral shenanigans I've ever seen, like people trying to get other people's signatures thrown out and um, complaints about dark money funding people. It was it was very dramatic over an unpaid position to be in charge of the anemic Massachusetts GOP. So it was really, I think um, these issues crop up everywhere, like from the highest level at the presidency, you know, people have concerns about how their elections are run all the way down the ballot to like these tiniest roles. And they're, they're all important. Um, But yeah, yeah. one of the things that I think is kind of really at the forefront now, Mm -hmm. and Lee touched on it was uh, the stress test to the elections, right? We're so used to now, unfortunately, what happened last year with COVID and being unsure about going to these, you know, high density areas to go vote. Mm -hmm. And now even it actually happened yesterday. There was a hearing in Massachusetts on vote by mail and do you make it permanent? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the states right now are going to be dealing with that issue of is there a transition back to normal or do they keep some of these um, voter system programs that they experiment with last cycle? Uh, do they extend it or make it permanent? I think that's going to be kind of an interesting uh, battle over the next two years. So mm-hmm. I know it's a little bit away from campaign finance and more about election processes. Right. But um, what's what's very relevant to Massachusetts is obviously we all know that we all know that Governor Baker now is reopening the state after nearly mm-hmm. 500 days being locked down. To some degree, we're supposed to be getting back to normal. So do we really need these programs to continue on? Knowing that, you know, even before the pandemic, anyone that wanted to vote but couldn't in person could get an absentee ballot. Right. So I would argue the answer is no. You don't need all these one-time programs Mm -hmm. to continue on. Um, And also the fact that after this last election cycle, there wasn't really any um, study done, any analysis, any audit done of what actually happened with the vote-by-mail program. We Mm -hmm. We know people used it. That's not a question. But there's so many questions that have been unanswered, like what happened to all the uh, absentee ballot requests that were returned were by the Postal Service? Right. You know, these registered voters who the Postal Service said were undeliverable, and the Postal Service gives you about 25, 26 reasons for why something is undeliverable. Well, what happened to all those voters? They're voter roll. Were they able to vote? If so, what happened to the address? Why was there such a discrepancy? Hmm. You know, I'm from... Um, New Jersey originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been up here since 2012. I spent time in Massachusetts. Before that, I spent time in Washington, D.C. The last time I was a registered voter in New Jersey was in 2006. In New Jersey passed an executive order that said every registered voter during the pandemic got a live ballot. Mm-hmm. Mind you, this is the election of 2020. And right. I haven't been a registered voter in New Jersey since 2006, and I got a live ballot in the mail hmm. from New Jersey this past election cycle. And somehow they found me, even though uh, the address associated with me in 2006 was not current till today. 
right. to where it was held. And I got this ballot in the mail, a live ballot. And mm-hmm. I was like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? I'm a registered voter in Massachusetts. So I called the, they have county clerks, not town clerks. Mm-hmm. And um, they told me on the phone, we want you to destroy it. We will go ahead and update our system. And uh, I called my, um, where I was originally from New Jersey, my local legislators. Right. And said, you know, just give me a heads up. This is what just happened. And the receptionist on the phone said, we have hundreds of phone calls just like this. And I was fascinated. So I just went on social media and I hashtag like New Jersey ballot. And you see the same thing happening. All these people posting on Twitter, like, why did I get four live ballots? <laughs> why did I get two? Why did I get one? Why is my kid getting one and they don't live here? Why is mm-hmm. my aunt getting one and she's dead? You know, just stuff like that happened everywhere. Right. So New Jersey's kind of a, a basket case because they actually sent out ballots to people who didn't even request right. it. Right. Not just uh, even request forms, which is crazy. Yeah. But still in Massachusetts, there's a lot of questions out there that have never been answered. The Secretary of State never was in front of a, a legislative hearing saying, mm-hmm. you know, these are the answers to all the questions you may have. Instead, you see some of the left wing proponents just going out there saying we want to extend it, make it permanent, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, some of them are actually saying we want to send out ballots, right. live ballots. That's, that's their end goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is not about making it easier at this point, because even pre-pandemic, anyone that wanted a vote but couldn't in person could get an absentee ballot. This mm-hmm. is just about gaming the system. If you're not interested in the details for what happened and you just want to expand it, you're just there to game the system. Right. Um, so you got to be really vigilant with with some of this election law stuff that is uh, – that's being masqueraded mm-hmm. as a reform or good government or easy access. If people don't want to know the details of what happened, then um, there's probably some other motive for why they want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, the way these um, rules were set up, in many cases, you can never know exactly what happened because they're designed to um, you know, make it hard to figure out whether there was any fraud or anything else. Like I kind of look at it as though if I owned a business and I left all the doors unlocked at night and the cash register open and I refused to count the money, then I wouldn't be able to tell you if anybody stole anything from me or not. And so I could tell you all day, well, I can leave the door unlocked because there's no evidence that anybody's ever stolen from me. But if I never count what's in the till or check the inventory of the store, I don't know if there was actually anybody stealing from me. And so I kind of see some of these election laws as like that. Like there is no ID. You can't like ask for in Georgia. The debate has been over like the signature matching versus like you can't write your social security like the last four of your social security number on the ballot. Like there's no way to tell if this is the person that it says it is. And like you say, these things are that states or county or whichever systems are just full of errors. It's crazy. I remember when I lived um, back in Melrose, I got um, one of the campaigns did this thing where um, they they send you a, a thing that lists your voting record, like which elections you voted in. And it was designed to get low propensity voters to kind of like shame them into voting. Mm-hmm. So and I had like a really bad grade for voting on it. And I was so upset. I was like, what are you talking about? I vote all the time. I vote in all these elections. But I had recently gotten married and for whatever reason, when I went in the system, all my voting history before I got married was gone. It wasn't connected to my old record as a voter. So all mm. the like presidential elections I had voted in since I was 18, it showed I never voted in them. And I mean, like, I know that I voted in those elections. Like, I quite clearly, you know, I don't know that I showed up to every town election or something, but but I know that I voted in the presidential elections and I could tell you who I voted for and, you know, what I was wearing when I went in and everything else. But 
you know, it was it was fascinating to me that that like mistake could just happen, and it, you know, they don't they don't know yeah. that it's all accurate. It's full of errors. Um, but yeah. I mean, let me add. Yeah. I, you know, I've litigated my share of uh, election disputes, mm-hmm. recounts, contests, post election, right? For uh, you know, better part of you know twenty years, and I can tell you the number one problem that um, threatens the accuracy of our elections and the trust we can hold in them. Mm -hmm. And that is election administration error. Hmm. It's not fraud. Fraud has occurred. There are documented cases of election fraud, but what happens election year in election year out are administrative errors. And usually elections are decided by a wide enough margin that errors that merely affect a small number of people don't fundamentally call into question the accuracy or outcome of our elections. But when you get a very close election, they can be decided by administrative error and Mm -hmm. and including not keeping poll books up to date, mailing ballots to people who are no longer voters, um, having inaccurate poll books. People are disenfranchised by mail voting. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, professional literature out there that calls mail voting the leaky pipe. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, it's, it's usually one or 2% of people who get the uh, um, ballot by mail, mail it back in and it never arrives either through postal service error mm-hmm. or because it gets mishandled when it hits the mailbox of the uh, uh, election administrator. Um, there are people who apply and for some reason the election administrator doesn't turn around and get it out to them in time. So this is why I've always supported greater funding Mm -hmm. uh, so that we can have greater integrity in our election administration system. The resources there to keep poll books accurate and to manage mail-in ballots and other voting and to hold uh, in-person early voting is far preferable to mail-in voting because Mm -hmm. all that does is it replicates what happens on election day. An individual... Lee Goodman shows up in most states has to have an ID. Mm -hmm. They mark Lee Goodman in the poll book. Lee Goodman gets one ballot. Lee Goodman feeds his ballot into the tabulator or gives it to an election administrator. Mm -hmm. And you can run that on Saturdays uh, for, you know, weeks before an election. You have perfect integrity in that as much integrity as you have on election day. Mm -hmm. And your Lee Goodman is also sure that he gets to vote privately not with someone looking over his shoulder at home and Lee Goodman is sure that his vote was counted. And if there's a problem, you catch it right there. Lee Goodman's not in the poll book. Of course I should be in the poll book. Maybe my name changed because I got married. Maybe I moved. Um, we can, then we can solve that problem. So Lee Goodman isn't disenfranchised at that point in time. So yeah. there are ways to run elections that expand opportunity to vote and also afford us trust and confidence in the results mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah. Right. And Lee also to your point, it's funny, you know, this vote by mail is like really relevant right now. And some of the left will just completely dismiss you. If you have any apprehension toward embracing this policy, right. you just don't want but people to I vote, to them, Paul. You just hate people voting because they, you know, that if they vote, then you'll lose. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Higher turnout means you're going to lose. But oftentimes I say, 
think about it this way. When you go to vote, I live in North Andover, mm-hmm. and we all vote in the same spot in town. If I went to vote there, and at the end of the day, North Andover came out and said, you know, oops, we made a mistake. 4% of the people here today who voted, we can't count because we lost our ballots or something. The mm-hmm. town would be enraged. Right. But when we allow that to happen with the Postal Service, it's kind of like, eh, it happened. Well, why is it? Why is it we accept a, you know, one, two, three, four, five percent, whatever it may be, discrepancy in how many mm-hmm. votes are counted? And that's why I think voting in person is great. You know, I've heard arguments you should make it a holiday. Well, I'm not a big fan of that. Why don't you just do it on a Saturday, early voting? There's mm-hmm. other ways around it, but I think that in person is the best way to go. And also, Lee, another point that you brought up, which I think is very critical, is even when ballots, you know, you get bills sent to home, whatever. But when the ballots are sent to home, there is an interesting, I think, social dynamic that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, this is not uh, across the board, but no one really knows what exactly ha- what exactly happens, what kind of pressure there is with spouses, family members, you know, the elderly in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's stuff that goes on in people's homes where maybe they may not have as much freedom to vote in in um, in their own privacy than they would go when they go to a voting location and you have that little booth and you do it privately. And I think that's really important to think about, um, especially, you know, what happened with COVID. And if you want to extend it is it's just kind of another way to game the system a little bit. Right. And you're taking away that person's um, ability Mm -hmm. to do it without any kind of recourse. Right. And I think that that's a great point. And, and even, you know, more than that, like you're trusting the postal service employees to not, put any undue pressure to not see the yard sign in that person's yard and lose the ballot on their way away because the postal service employees, I don't think, I mean, I know they're trained not to do anything with the mail, but they're not like trained in elections law and about, you know, not influencing people or about, you know, not saying something to that. You wouldn't be allowed to, you know, talk to people outside of a, a, a polling place, but if the polling place is everywhere, then, then, you know, those rules kind of cease to apply. So I think that's an interesting point that I hadn't hadn't thought of before. I also tend to be against like early vote, like no excuse early voting too, frankly, because I, you know, I think the elections are sort of a snapshot in time and not a running, mm-hmm. you know, like a, just a rolling approval rating for the president, yeah. for example. And it irked me in, in 2020 because, you know, Trump at the beginning of October, when people were already voting, had his COVID thing happen and he was, you know, being weird and he was just like terrible at the beginning of October. And a lot of that's on him. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to remove responsibility because I totally think 2020, in spite of everything, was winnable for him and he miffed it. But that's beside the point, because I think that he really recovered a lot towards Election Day and his image and his behavior. And I think that if a lot of those people who cast ballots in maybe early October had voted later on, their their choice might have been different closer to that time. Also, I mean, like things happen with with people in advance. I remember um, I knew someone who was running for office and she had a friend that that tragically passed away and all his relatives went, don't worry, he already voted for you. And she was like, la la la, don't tell me that. That Don't say that. That's not allowed. You're not supposed to be voting for people if you're dead. That's not like kosher. But, um, but I mean, I think stuff like that does happen. I mean, people do die every day. And, and so, 
you know, I think that that it does sort of dilute the point of the election as one moment in time if there's a lot of early voting, too. But but I mean, I agree with you that that's probably a better alternative to to mail voting, which is so uncontrollable and puts so much in the hands yeah. of the Postal Service, which is like that's a whole nother that's a whole nother problem I have in, in the world is my problems with the Postal Service. Uh, mm-hmm. They irritate me. I mean, it's also not private, you know, the, the mail. Yeah. It's. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you lose control mm-hmm. of it instead of putting it right into the ballot counting machine. Right. But, you know, even like you said, with the early voting with Trump and Biden, I think the some of the states started to do early voting before the, the last presidential debate. Right. And I think, um, you know, maybe people may have reconsidered how they were going to vote after listening to that debate. But mm-hmm. one thing I definitely I know you're probably getting close for time. But one mm-hmm. thing I want to mention is that. Uh, you you know, even no matter what happens this year, going to next next election cycle, there's going to be this big push to do, you know, early voting, vote by mail, satellite voting, same day registration, all these procedures Mm -hmm. that make, quote, voting easier. And one thing I always try to remember, and for, you know, people that are right of center is, um, you know, if you want to do these mechanisms, I think one of the best ways to instill confidence is make them really transparent to the Mm -hmm. point where it's painfully transparent. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is, I mentioned in Massachusetts, there was no audit, there was no hearing. The Secretary of State never came forward and answered any questions for what happened with all these absentee ballot requests. Mm -hmm. That's not very transparent. There's no database Mm -hmm. where I can go and look up to see, you know, my town, what happened with all these people. Um, And that, that is a problem for people's confidence. But in other states, what they do is they'll do these mechanisms to make voting easier, but they'll make it really transparent. They'll put all this data online so the general public can go look for themselves. Investigative mm-hmm. reporters, watchdog organizations can all go find it. And before I started Mass Fiscal Alliance, I used to work in Washington, D.C. Um, politics. Mm-hmm. An urban city has a uh, huge track record of government problems um, but they decided to implement all these these uh, mechanisms. They did same-day voter registration. They did early voting. They did what they call satellite voting. So, you know, put the polling locations at a supermarket, hmm. um, all these mechanisms. But what they also did, which was really fantastic, was every single tire day, their election office put data so the general public can go download it and see exactly how everyone in the city is voting that mm-hmm. day. It's almost like a COVID tracker right. database, right. but for voting. So I could see that my neighbor went and voted early. Mm-hmm. I could see another neighbor just registered to vote. I could see a fan member requested an absentee ballot, but hasn't received it yet. And I could see when they received it. Wow. And that level of transparency, I think really instills confidence for the voters and for the, you know, the mm-hmm. watchdog groups, the media groups that kind of go and track this stuff because you say, you know, it's all up and up. They have nothing to hide. It's mm-hmm. all there. If you have any problems, you can mail those people. You can reach out to them and say, did you get the absentee ballot like the data shows? Or did you vote early? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's what we have to always remember. Anytime there's a, a an effort to, to do these kind of election changing of processes, we have to make sure it's super transparent to the point where it's almost painful for the government to make it so transparent. But that's the only way you're going to keep the confidence Mm -hmm. um, maintained. Yeah, I agree. Um, Well, like you said, we're getting a little tight on time. um, But I appreciate both so much 
that you came on here with me to talk about all these issues. It was we ranged a little off, but it was it was all good and interesting things that we talked about. So I appreciate it so much. Um, Lee Goodman, formerly uh, chairman at the Federal Election Commission, and Paul Craney of the Mass Fiscal Alliance. Thank you so much for being here with me and talking to me about all these issues. I appreciate it. Clouds rolled in and I said, must have brought the rain from Boston. But you looked at me and I felt the sun.